We have in this passage before us a couple of if-then statements, and then we also have a couple of other statements that could be interpreted causally. Let me list these for you. First, Jesus says in verse 15, If you love me, implicitly, then you will keep my commandments. And second, in verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, implicitly, then he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. These two are the if-then statements in this passage. And now, here are some statements, some further statements that could be interpreted causally. And what I mean by that is as if one variable causes another. First, in verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And, implicitly, if we, if we understood it this way, Therefore, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Or in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words. And implicitly, it's not in the text, but if we interpreted it causally, we'd say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And implicitly, therefore, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, in view of these statements, the two explicit if-then statements and then these other two statements that could be interpreted causally, one way of reading this passage could be to decide, well, we do want God to love us after all, don't we? And we would like the Holy Spirit to come to us, right? So, therefore, let us love Jesus and keep His commandments as conditions that we have to fill, fulfill in order for God to love us and in order for the Holy Spirit to come to us and to make his home with us. In other words, we could read this passage as a list of conditions to meet in order to be loved by God and dwelt by the Spirit. So I could take this text this morning and that would be the thrust of it. Look, you want God to love you, right? You want the Holy Spirit, right? Well, love God and keep his commandments. That would be one way of reading this passage. But I would ask you, does that sound right? It might, especially if you're new um, to the Christian faith. It's grammatically possible. It's a grammatically possible reading of this passage. It might sound right if you don't have background in other um, sections of Scripture. But I hope that it sounds wrong to you. Because it is wrong. As we study the whole of the Bible more and more over time, we ought to develop an increasingly better sense of discernment to hear when a specific passage is being interpreted in a manner that's inconsistent with what the Bible as a whole teaches. And obviously, you wouldn't have that discernment if you're not very familiar with what the Bible as a whole teaches. So that builds up over time. But the Bible as a whole teaches that God's love for us is an undeserved gift, not a reward that we get once we've fulfilled and once we've met certain conditions. Likewise, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift that we receive from God, not a reward that we get after we have met certain conditions. 
So it certainly would be an example of faulty interpretation if I told you this morning, based on this passage, though it's grammatically possible, it's not theologically admissible. So I couldn't tell you, it wouldn't be theologically accurate for me to tell you based on this passage, that if you want God to love you, and if you want His Holy Spirit to indwell you, that you ought to love Jesus and obey His commandments to qualify for that. That interpretation would run against too many other teachings of um, Scripture, other places of Scripture where the opposite is taught. So, in view of that, D.A. Carson is right when in commenting on this passage, he says that the love of the disciples for Jesus should not be seen as the price paid for the gift. He also says... Um, therefore, that the phrases that I listed a few minutes ago are to be interpreted as a set of essential relations, not a set of conditions. So in other words, Jesus is describing various aspects of the believer's soon-to-be experience once he ascends to the Father's right hand and departs from them. He is describing the essential relationship between various aspects of what is going to be the disciples' relation. Um, oh, pardon me. Various aspects of what is soon to be the disciples' experience. So, in other words, you can't have one of these aspects without the others. So, if you have this, then you have that. That's where the if-then statements come in. And um, this is going to happen, and also that is going to happen. So these aren't to be interpreted as conditions, but a set of relations. So you can't have love for Jesus without obedience. You can't have obedience without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you can't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit without being loved by God. And you can't be loved by God if you're not one who obeys. And if you're, um, you know, on and on it goes. These are all related to each other and connected to each other. So it's not that one causes the other. That's not what Jesus is teaching us. He's explaining to us that all of these things go together and he's giving us a set of essential relations rather than a set of conditions. So this passage is not teaching for the sake of clarity. For example, that if you want the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then you better obey Jesus in order to qualify. Now, Jesus is describing a set of essential relations, not a set of conditions. So with that important caveat in mind, let us look at this passage more closely. And as we do, I would remind you of the context. It is the last night of Jesus' earthly life. Though we are in only John chapter 14, the Last Supper has already been had. Judas has gone out into the night. And the disciples' hearts are troubled, as per John 14:1, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Saying that to them because their hearts are troubled. They don't fully understand what's up, as is evidenced by the questions they ask, like, where are you going? But the disciples perceive that something is going on because of the gravity of Jesus' demeanor and his teaching. Jesus, in chapter 13, has started to talk about being betrayed and going away. And he continues on those themes in chapter 14, speaking about going away again. So... Jesus is now preparing his disciples for what they are about to experience. Even though the rest of John's gospel comprises 
uh, several more chapters. It's really only the last night of Jesus' life and some teaching that he gives on the last night, and then it's the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And that's really all we have in, in John's Gospel. Here we are in John chapter 14, and Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they are about to experience. He assures them, as, they saw, as we saw last week, that because, for the very reason that he is leaving, going to the Father, as he says in verse 28, because he is going to the Father, his disciples should not hang back and be afraid or uncertain when Jesus leaves. But they should participate in the greater works that the Father will be doing in the world at that time, as we saw in verses 12 to 14 in our sermon last week. And they should be praying to Him and looking to Him for strength. Jesus has already taught that, and now we pick up right there at that juncture. Now, in verse 15, Jesus elaborates on what the disciples' experience will be like with Him gone. And note first that Jesus says that those who love Him will continue in obedience. That's in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now don't miss this. This is such a simple point, and it really should be uncontroversial. But in our day and age of sentimentalism, this is an important point to stress. Many... I would, say, I would say especially those outside the church, but even Christians, many have adopted a view of love, which I'm going to describe as being basically just sentimental, which essentially negates the importance of obedience and renders it optional. Sentimentalists, if we can call them that, define love basically as just having nice feelings. And so this is why sentimentalists will say, it's not loving to disagree with someone. It's not loving to confront someone about something or point out an error because that kills the nice feelings, right? So it's not love. It's not loving to do so. So sentimentalists basically equate love with nice feelings, warm feelings. And so sentimentalists reason that if you have, as it comes to Jesus, if you have nice feelings in your heart toward Jesus, well, you must love him. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. So never mind if you obey Jesus or not. If you like Him, right? And if you have nice feelings in your heart toward Jesus, you love Him. And anyone who tells you otherwise is unloving. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a bigot. They're judging you. But who are they to say? They don't know your heart. If you have nice feelings in your heart for Jesus, you love Him. Right? You're, you're a genuine Christian. No one can say otherwise. You see that error popping up a lot, right? Jesus con contradicts that flatly here. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus teaches us here then, that whatever we might call those nice feelings that someone has in their heart towards him, if they are not accompanied by obedience to Christ's commands, we ought not to call those nice feelings love. Whatever they may be, they're not love. We may recognize genuine love for Christ by the presence of obedience to Christ in someone's life. So, don't look for the wordsmiths, those who can talk real good about God, 
and about Jesus and about His gospel, even truly and rightly about Jesus and His gospel. Don't look for the emotionally charged, emotionally uh, driven person. Maybe they got their hands up in worship or they're dancing or they've got tears going down their face. Don't look for those when you're looking for those who love Jesus. Look for those who obey Jesus. How many times have you seen leave the faith altogether? Somebody who used to be an impressive preacher who could talk well and even accurately about the things of God. How many times have you seen leave the faith altogether? Those who used to be emotionally engaged in the things of the Lord. Think back to those of you maybe who grew up in church. Think back to youth groups. Okay? How many are still walking with the Lord? But many of them had emotional experiences. Right? Loving Jesus is not merely, listen, merely a matter of talking well about Jesus or having nice feelings about Jesus or having emotional experiences, but also of obeying Him. Now, because some of you are going to be objecting in your hearts, let me admit, okay, many who obey Jesus can have warm feelings for Jesus as well, right? Many who obey Jesus can also speak well and beautifully and truly about Jesus as well. Many who obey Jesus also have emotional experiences and raise their hands and dance and clap and cry and that's okay. That's not my point to disallow these other things, but to say that Jesus says here, if you have those things but you don't have obedience, you don't have love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. So it's not, someone can't be like, well, how, do, how can you say I don't love Jesus? I cried on Sunday. How can you say I don't love Jesus? I have nice feelings towards him in my heart. That's my point. There has to be obedience to Jesus where there is, wherever there is love. So, those who love Jesus will obey him whatever else they may additionally do. But the presence of other things without love, or pardon me, without obedience, is a sure sign that someone doesn't love Jesus. Now, primarily intended in reference, in the reference to obedience here, are the commands that Jesus has given in the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. Jesus has instructed his disciples to love one another. That's in chapter 13 and verse 34. Jesus has instructed his disciples to believe in him. That's in chapter 14 and verse 1. Jesus has implicitly instructed his disciples, as we saw last week, to get in on the greater works that the Father will be doing in the world after his ascension. That's in John chapter 14 and verse 12. So those who love Jesus will be obedient at least to these commands. But by extension, whatever else Jesus has commanded will also be included in the obedience of those who love Him. After all, whoever genuinely loves Jesus will not embrace some of Jesus' commands and ignore others. Those who obey Jesus obey because they love Him, and so it is because they love Him that they obey. Therefore, those who love, if those who love Jesus come to realize that Jesus has commanded not only X, but also Y, whatever X and Y may be, 
those who truly love Jesus will embrace not only X, but also Y for Jesus' sake. So, if somebody truly loves Jesus, they're going to pursue a comprehensive obedience to Christ Jesus, including the commands that Jesus has given in the more immediate context here, but all of Jesus' commands, really. Even those come to us through the apostles and prophets. Alright? So, I wanted to hit that because it's a relevant point, given the sentimentalism of our day, but that's actually not the main point of our passage. Let's move on now to what is the main focus of this passage, which is that the disciples of Jesus will not be without a helper, but that they will receive another helper. Jesus has instructed the disciples about their duty in verse 15. It's like he said, look, I'm, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to depart from here. If you really love me, keep on obeying me. That's in verse 15. And from verses 16 onward, Jesus moves on to reassure them, his disciples, that they won't have to do it alone. They won't have to walk this path of obedience to him alone. There will be a helper to enable them, even though Jesus will not be physically present with them anymore. Jesus then describes from verses 16 to 28 what life will be like for the believer who receives the coming helper. So we'll spend the rest of our time this morning examining the rest of this passage and what life will be like in the age of the ascended Christ and the coming helper. First of all, Jesus says that the helper presently dwells with the disciples. That's in verse 17. Look at it. He dwells with you, the passage says. And of course, the Holy Spirit did dwell with them, even at that time before Pentecost. Remember what Jesus taught in John chapter 3. Unless a man is born again, what? He cannot see. He cannot even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, let alone enter it. So if anyone has ever entered the, had ever entered the kingdom of God prior to Pentecost, they had to have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has been active already in the disciples' lives, as He was in the lives of all the Old Testament saints, regenerating them, giving them the new birth. The Holy Spirit's ministry did not begin at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has dwelt among God's people, though externally for the most part, throughout the whole Old Testament period. The Holy Spirit has been with God's people ever since. However, Jesus says in verse 17, right after saying that He dwells with you, He says, and He will be in you. Now there's some manuscript variation here. If you're using the ESV, there's a footnote which says that some manuscripts say that He dwells with you and is in you. Well, other manuscripts say He dwells with you and will be in you. Based on verse 23, I think that the ESV has leaned on the correct manuscript transition, tr or not transition, tradition, has leaned on the correct manuscript tradition, because verse 23 
Um, in verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Surely that's a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so if there is this future aspect of the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 23, though there's also a present aspect of the Holy Spirit, as just discussed, it stands to reason that we would see both present and future back in verse 17 also. So I think that the ESV has leaned on the correct manuscript tradition when they say that He dwells with you and will be in you. And this fits with the statement earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 7 and verse 39, that those who believed in Jesus were to receive the Spirit, but that, quote, as yet the Spirit had not been given. See, the Holy Spirit was externally among God's people throughout the Old Testament. And He would work upon people, uh, changing their hearts and empowering them for certain tasks and so on and so forth. And it seems that He indwelt some Old Testament believers, at least, on an ad hoc basis. For example, you see David saying, Take not your spirit from me which implies that he had God's Spirit, and yet it also implies that it was at least a theoretical possibility for God to take His Spirit from him. And so, when we understand that though the Spirit was operative and active throughout the Old Testament period, but we also read things that, like, as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, and those who believed in Jesus were to receive Him, Verse 17 of John 14 puts it all together. Presently at this time, he dwells with the disciples and will be in them, namely at Pentecost. So after Pentecost, not just, not, the Holy Spirit would not just be with the disciples, but would be in the disciples. After Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would not just be in some of the disciples and that temporarily, but would be within each and every one of God's people. Such that Romans 8 can say, if someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Each and every believer after Pentecost would not only have the Holy Spirit with us, but in us. And that forever, according to verse 16, He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Again then, as we saw last week, The ascension of Christ to the Father's side will benefit the people of God. Though Jesus Himself would not be physically with His disciples after His ascension, He tells us in this passage, or He tells them in this passage, that He would not leave them as orphans, but would come to them, as verse 18 says, and that by means of His Spirit. From the Father's right hand, He will pour out His Spirit upon His people. And in doing so, we'll be coming to them together with His Father to make His home with them, as verse 23 says. When Jesus ascends, there will be a distinction made between the disciples of Jesus and, quote, the world, which is John's shorthand for the unbelieving mass of humanity. The world cannot receive the Spirit. 
It neither sees him nor knows him, according to verse 17. Jesus will manifest himself to his own, but not to the world, verses 21 and 22. Therefore, in view of this, again, as Jesus said at the beginning of the chapter, so Jesus says again in verse 27, his disciples should, not let, should let not their hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. The disciples aren't going to just be abandoned when Jesus leaves because he's going to come to them. The disciples are not just going to fare as everybody else does in this world. They're going to fare better than everyone else does in this world because Jesus is going to send another helper. Therefore, in view of this, Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. One helper is going. That's the implication of the phrase another helper, right? That Jesus is one. And though Jesus is going, one helper is going, another helper is coming. Let's look now at the things that this passage mentions about the ministry of the coming helper. First, he is called the Spirit of Truth in verse 17. He taught the apostles, as verse 26 indicated he would do. And he brought to their remembrance the things Jesus had said during his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead people to believe things contrary to what Jesus taught. The Holy Spirit's ministry is not separate from the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, but rather it continues in the same vein. And so the solution to the problem of those uh, churches and traditions which emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit as if it's separate from the ministry of Jesus, the solution to that problem isn't to seek less of the Holy Spirit than those traditions do and those churches do, but rather the solution is to seek a profoundly and truly Spirit-filled Christian experience. Which, according to this passage, we need to understand will mean that we will have a heavily and solidly doctrinal Christian experience. For the helper is the spirit of truth. If a supposedly spirit-filled experience makes someone less committed to sound doctrine, if a supposedly spirit-filled experience leads someone to become less solid in sound doctrine. It is not the spirit of truth who has supposedly filled this person. The spirit of truth, what a radical thought, ministers the truth of God to us and is concerned that we imbibe and that we hold fast to the truth of God. That which Christ has taught and that which Christ sent His spirit to teach the apostles, and to bring to their remembrance so that they might in turn teach us. The Holy Spirit's ministry then is not separate from or antithetical to this book, but complementary with it and to it. It continues in the same vein as the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and of Christ Himself. But that's not all the Spirit does. He does teach us he is concerned about truth and doctrine. But look at verse 20. Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, 
and you in me, and I in you. Now, obviously, Jesus did not mean that in that day you will cognitively understand this doctrine. You know why I say obviously he didn't mean that? Because Jesus was teaching them this doctrine right there and then. So, Jesus could have just said, in that day, I will be in, the, in my Father, and you will be in me, and I in you. And right there and then, they would have had the doctrine. But what Jesus says is, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're going to know something that you already know. See that? Because Jesus is telling them right now, so they already know it. So what Jesus is saying, you know this right now, but in that day, you will know it. So in other words, he's speaking about a different kind of knowing than just the cognitive understanding that they could possess there and then, in that very moment. Listen here. The Holy Spirit does not lead us away from doctrine and toward mere experience. But the Holy Spirit's ministry is to be experienced as well as understood and analyzed and discussed and so on and so forth. We read in the scripture things like He sheds the Father's love abroad in our hearts. Or that He makes us know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. See that? How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? That's not speaking about a cognitive understanding. It's not speaking about an intellectual assent to doctrines or, or putting more statements, uh, true statements and more propositional truths into your mind. To know something that surpasses knowledge speaks to an experience of something that can't really be reduced to mere propositional truths. There are phrases in the Bible which speak to experience and not mere head knowledge. And here in this passage we have one. The Holy Spirit is said here to be one who will give us a sense of our fellowship with Christ. That we are in Him and that He is in us. And that He in turn is in His Father. We know the doctrine of that. And the disciples knew the doctrine of that that very day, this very day that Jesus spoke these words recorded in John chapter 14. But when the Spirit came, they knew it in a different way and in a different sense. They experienced, in other words, being in Christ and Christ in them and Christ being in His Father. So, in other words, this passage teaches us that the Holy Spirit helps us experience fellowship with our triune God through our union with Christ. Not only does He teach us doctrine, but He also helps us experience fellowship with our triune God. So, in summary, Jesus is about to lay down His life as the Good Shepherd of the sheep. But He is teaching His disciples here that He won't, therefore, 
stop caring for his people when he dies. Just because he dies, it doesn't mean the end of his shepherding of them. But he will rise and he will ascend. And from heaven, he will send another helper to his people. The spirit of truth will come to live not only with, but in God's people. And that forever. To guide them doctrinally and to help them experience fellowship with God. Jesus' disciples needn't fear then that Jesus was leaving. Even though they heard Jesus saying things like, I am going to be betrayed, I'm going away. Jesus' disciples needn't fear in light of all that he was telling them here. Jesus told them these things ahead of time, according to verse 29, in order to strengthen their faith so that when these things started to happen and unfold the way that Jesus, exactly the way that Jesus said they would, they wouldn't be shaken in their faith and waver in their faith, but they would actually grow stronger in their faith and believe deeper and better because they would understand that all is going according to plan. That's what's happening here in this text this morning. So by way of application to you 21st century Christians, don't think that your Christian experience is lesser than the experience of Christians who lived well, Jesus walked the earth. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, because it's, it's startling, and I think it's rightly startling and jarring. If you think that you would have been better off to be alive during the time that Jesus walked the earth, and say, for example, to grow up alongside Jesus in Nazareth, and to be a family friend. If you think that you would be better off to have lived in close proximity to Jesus during his earthly life and ministry, then you are now, as a believer, living after Pentecost. You don't properly understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's a radical thought. But that's what the scripture teaches us. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Many Christians live as if we are disadvantaged by Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand. That we are disadvantaged that He is no longer walking among us. We act like Jesus isn't here. But He hasn't left us as orphans. He has come to us as this passage teaches us, by His Spirit. Many Christians, including many Reformed, we're an equal opportunity pulpit ministry here. We don't just pick on other denominations. Sometimes we pick on ourselves too. Even the Reformed many times live as if this wasn't true. As if Jesus... We live as if Jesus has left us as orphans and has not come to us. We live as functional binitarians instead of trinitarians. As if there was only a divine father and a divine son and no divine spirit. There is no consciousness of or appreciation for 
the Spirit's ongoing daily ministry. Many Christians act as if there were no divine person present to help in the hour of temptation. In this conversation or that conversation or in this decision to be made or in this heart process, we act as if we're facing temptation all along and there is no divine person present with us to help us in temptation. And we go through this world the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. And we let our hearts be troubled. And we let our hearts be afraid. As if there was no divine person with us. As if the opposite is true of what the Bible says. And God has left us and forsaken us. And we are all alone down here. We act as functional binetarians. Even if we confess an orthodox Trinitarianism, we act like the Holy Spirit isn't here. We act like He's not present with us. We act like He's not a helper in temptation. We act like He's not a giver of peace when our hearts are prone to be troubled. We act like Jesus is far away instead of acting like Jesus has made His home with us. And that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are present with us to enjoy communion with by the Spirit. Even in preparing this sermon, even I have been convicted about this functional neglect of the Spirit in my own life lately. No matter how orthodox we may be in our Trinitarian doctrine, We must learn to be functional Trinitarians also. And we need to learn to appreciate and be conscious of the Spirit's ongoing ministry to us day by day. In endeavoring to do that then, let us live out this day and this week conscious of the help of the Helper. In learning sound doctrine, in experiencing fellowship with God. Let us live out this day and this week with the help of the Helper in obedience to Jesus, out of love for Jesus. Let not our hearts be troubled, but let us embrace the peace that Christ has given us, both through His teaching in this passage and through the coming of the Holy Spirit.